This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and today I am very pleased to be with Dr. James Hebert, the Robert J. Barkley Professor in the School of Education at the University of Delaware. Um, Jim, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Sure, glad to do it. We're going to be talking about Jim's career in mathematics education, a long and illustrious one. Um, you were the SIG RME Senior Scholar Award winner in the past, and I actually was able to capture your remarks that you made at SIG RME at that time, and those are available as a previous episode. Right now, what we're going to do is kind of go back to the beginning and just talk through some of the highlights of your career in math education. So let's go right to that beginning. Uh, what was it that spurred your decision to actually pursue a PhD in math education? So I'm going to begin by even going a little further back than that okay. and talk about why I got interested in mathematics. Because I came out of high school having no particular interest in mathematics and no particular idea of what I wanted to major in. In college, uh, two things happened, and I think these are pretty typical of people that get interested in mathematics. One is that the small college I attended had a stunningly great instructor in mathematics, hmm. and I um, took a course with him the first semester and sort of got hooked. The other thing was that there were a number of instances during the first few years of my college career where I was taking a mathematics course that I felt really sort of lost in. And at some point, after a lot of hard work and struggle, I had this great epiphany about how things worked in this particular domain. Mm -hmm. And it was such an adrenaline rush. Mm -hmm. I decided, oh, that's kind of like you know getting a fix. I have to go after that again. Mm -hmm. So I got interested in math. I pursued a, a master's degree in mathematics, um, wondering whether I would go on for a PhD or not in math. I decided after a master's degree that I uh, would prefer to teach. So I taught high school for several years and then uh, decided that was really hard work. Since my high school teaching career, I've developed this incredible admiration for teachers. Mm -hmm that um, lasts to this day. I think teaching is a really challenging job. So I went back to graduate school, and at that point I had learned there was a field called mathematics education. Mm -hmm. But when I um, was trying to earn my PhD degree, I actually bounced around a little bit, trying to find a place that um, I felt suited me and an interest that I was interested wanted to work on um, in terms of research. So I began at, the, at Arizona State University. Mm -hmm. During my first year there, I spent a semester at Oxford University in England, and I learned about children's mathematics learning, which opened up a whole new area of interest for me. Was that and like an, another epiphany moment, but of a different type? Yeah. Um, I had this incredibly great tutor at Oxford that fit the prototype of your perfect tutor. I listened to a number of lectures by Jerome Bruner, who was on the faculty at that point at Oxford. So I just got very interested in that. And so then I ended up transferring to the University of Wisconsin okay. um, to pursue that interest and worked with Tom Carpenter there. 
and um, learned a heck of a lot during that time at Wisconsin and developed my initial interest in doing research on um, children's math learning during Mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people might be familiar with the history of Wisconsin, one of the central institutions for math education. Mm -hmm. What era was that that you started there? I began my degree in 1976. Okay. Um, so Tom Carpenter had actually just come as a faculty member. Okay. He was new there. He had transferred from um, San Diego State, where he had started as faculty. So people like Tom Carpenter, Tom Romberg, um, Liz Fenema, um, there were a number of you know really great faculty there. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was a great time. I, I really enjoyed my time there. And you mentioned a focus on students' mathematical thinking, which makes sense for that era of Wisconsin. So what was the actual kind of topic that you pursued, and what was this kind of the first phases of your scholarly career in math ed? I was assigned to a research project that was directed by Tom Carpenter and Jim Moser, who was um, a professional staff person there. They were developing a curriculum at the time called Developing Mathematical Processes, or DMP. As part of that curriculum development project, they wanted to find out more about children's sort of entry knowledge and skills in arithmetic when they began first grade. Hmm. Um, And at that time, there was also a big interest at several places in how children, young children do arithmetic. Mm. And so I was part of a research team that spent the year interviewing first graders about arithmetic problems, reading a story problem to them, having them work out the solution to it mm-hmm. under different conditions. And I think it's fair to say that all of us that were involved in that interview process, and that included Tom and Jim, myself, and a few other people, were stunned by the creativeness of first graders' Mm -hmm. strategies for solving those simple arithmetic problems. Mm -hmm. That sort of uh, stimulated my interest in sort of continuing to think about how kids think about mathematics. My dissertation was somewhat related to that, but I would say the more more formative experience in my graduate studies at Wisconsin was working on that research project. Mm -hmm. And then what made it extra fascinating was coming back a year later and interviewing the same children. Mm. Wow. And not in all cases, but in a striking number of memorable cases... After a year of instruction using a traditional curriculum, Mm -hmm. the children were not as facile. I was afraid you were going to say that. (laughs) As they were a year before. Mm -hmm. So a common question they would ask when I would read the story problem was, oh, is this an add-on or a Mm takeaway? And of course, they had never asked that the year before. Mm -hmm. They had simply thought about it, thought about it, and either counted or move blocks around depending on what the Mm -hmm. condition was, but were clearly placing themselves in the context of the problem and simply acting it out. Mm -hmm. But after a year of instruction, they had rules and they were trying to use those rules to map onto problems and that was Mm -hmm. getting a number of them confused. Mm -hmm. So 
I think we might come back to that idea a little okay. bit about like what kind of instruction they're getting because yeah. you have more to say about that later in your career. But before we move on to that, I wanted to also check in with you about the decimal numbers work that you did. Mm -hmm. So I think this was early, maybe earlier after you had gotten your PhD. You got some right. grants to look at students' knowledge and their thinking with decimal numbers. What were some of the key things that you remember from that time or that work? I would say the most memorable finding from that work actually two. One was by the time we were interviewing kids in grade six, five, six, seven, about decimal fractions, mm -hmm. they were so rule bound that they could not proceed with a problem unless they remembered a rule. Mm. And if they remembered a rule, they applied it but had no idea whether their answer was correct or not. They just didn't have a way of making sense out of what was going on. Mm -hmm. And that does tie back to the fact that those kids in first grade were beginning to learn these rules, mm -hmm. which by fifth, sixth, seventh grade were completely governing their behavior mm -hmm. in that setting. That was the first memorable thing. It wasn't that I was surprised that they were trying to follow rules. It was the extent to which they were locked into those. Yeah. And they just simply had no way of making sense out of what was going on. Mm. Um, the second interesting thing is that a number of, we ran a number of studies at that point. There was a longitudinal study included in that set where we intervened with instruction and it does turn out that, as we found out in that project, that if you change instruction, even at the time where kids are already familiar with the usual way of doing mathematics, it's possible to change their attitudes, their way of thinking, their disposition, their idea about what mathematics is. And so a number of those students would turn into sense makers. And it wasn't cleverly super creative designed instruction. It was simply allowing them to make sense of um, the symbols that they were manipulating mm -hmm. by using other representations like concrete materials or um, other materials that they created. Mm -hmm. So that leads, I think, to an, another era of your work that a lot of people are probably familiar with when you start to look at conceptually based instruction and concepts versus procedures and really articulating that. Um, so it sounds like you're already starting to talk about that shift, but I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about, in your work, what led you to really shift towards that focus on instruction, and was that always part of the plan, or was this like an organic development of your scholarly ideas? I would say it was organic development, because I think um, what happened, if I'm recalling correctly, is that in the initial several studies we did, which were intended to be simply descriptive of students' skills and knowledge about decimals, we were so struck by the inability they had to sort of step back and ask themselves questions about whether what they were doing made any sense at all, that the question we began asking ourselves was, could you change this? Was there a way to provide instruction so that students 
began focusing on other things besides the rules, yeah. memorizing rules. Mm -hmm. So it sort of came out of watching kids struggle with making sense of things and wanting to understand what kind of instruction would it take to change the way they thought about things. Mm -hmm. The sort of emphasis on thinking about what kind of conceptually based instruction would be helpful came out, out of just watching kids struggle mm -hmm. when they had very little conceptual knowledge to, to go on. Mm -hmm. You co-wrote The Teaching Gap with James Stigler, the book that has made a large impact in the field. I just wanted to ask you what it was like writing that book, uh, and maybe you can speak about how that book connects to these insights you were getting, because now you bring in an international kind of perspective and comparison maybe as another way to shed light on issues around mathematics instruction in the U.S. Yes, part of that project was serendipity, but part of it did connect with what I had already been thinking about. I was um, on sabbatical at um, UCLA at the time where Jim Stigler works, and um, while I was there, he began working on a proposal to conduct a video study. And asked if I was interested, and of course I was. So, so I'll cut the, all the details out. We began watching video of math lessons in eighth grade coming in from several different countries. Mm -hmm. And every country was unique. So there was not a clear commonality among the high-achieving countries in the sample. The most intriguing videos that we saw were coming from Japan. Although everybody's heard a lot about Japan now, that was our first introduction to what classrooms look like in eighth grade in Japan. Mm -hmm. And the striking thing about those videos is the artfulness with which the lessons were designed and the apparent ability of any teacher in Japan to teach that kind of lesson in that kind of way. Hmm. Because these were randomly sampled teachers hmm. teaching randomly sampled classrooms. So many of the lessons look very similar in the structure, in the way they played out, in the apparent anticipation the teachers had about what was going to happen and how they used students' thinking very productively in the discussions with students. So there were a lot of aspects of the, that kind of instruction that were just so um, new to me. Mm -hmm. And to think that it had spread so widely in Japan became the question that both Jim and I were most interested in, is mm -hmm. like, how did they all learn to do this? Mm -hmm. Then we began um, learning about lesson study as a professional development activity um, in Japan and became even more interested in that aspect, I think, than the actual analysis of the videotapes themselves. Hmm. So the, the link to the previous work I had been doing was the strong emphasis on conceptual development the creative way that the lessons were designed with a particular theory of learning in mind 
and then the mechanism that teachers in the country were using to learn how to teach that way. Hmm. So the teaching gap was sort of prompted by our fascination with what we were learning about how Japanese teachers studied teaching Mm -hmm. and how they improved teaching incrementally but steadily over time in a way that could be shared with all the teachers throughout the country. So this is a quote from Al Shanker, who was the former president of the AFT in the U.S. Mm -hmm. What I saw by watching Japanese teaching and hearing about lesson study and watching teachers engage in it was a realization of Al Shanker's dream, which he expressed in a testimony to Congress at one point, which was, I dream of the day when the best we know becomes standard practice in classrooms. And that seemed to be what was happening in Japan. The best way you could design a lesson is the way that all the teachers It's becoming normal. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's what stimulated the writing of the book. Mm -hmm. Writing the book itself was really fun. Uh, We had a great time. We decided that we weren't going to split up the book and each write separate chapters. Mm -hmm. We were going to do this as a completely collaborative effort. And so for, I would say, a year and a half, maybe, we worked out a way to meet every six weeks for two or three full days. And we plotted out each chapter and we outlined it in enough detail so that at the end of that process, either one of us could have written it. Mm -hmm. And then we um, edited each other's work. So by the time it got to its final point, we have no idea who wrote which sentence. Mm -hmm. Um, And that holds true for the entire book. So it was a really fun collaborative effort working Mm -hmm. out the ideas in that book. So I was a little sad when it was over because (laughs) it was, yeah, the process was really good. Yeah, but the life of the book in the math ed community was just starting. And I was wondering, so you mentioned you were just sharing the fascination that you had and the, the way that you were processing what you were seeing. Did you have any kind of anticipation of the impact it was going to make in the field or how like widely it was going to become kind of a a touchstone for math educators and math teacher educators? No, uh, honestly, I, I did not at all. I, I was um, completely consumed with those ideas. I just loved the ideas. Mm-hmm. But I'm not accustomed to anticipating what sort of effect the work I do will have. Mm-hmm. So, no, I didn't. Mm-hmm. And I will have to say that the most striking experience after that book was published was receiving an email from a sixth grade teacher in Broken Bow, Nebraska, who had found the book in a bookstore Mm -hmm. and read the book and was now trying to figure out how to improve her teaching Mm -hmm. based on what we had said in the book. The fact that teachers from all of these places around the country would be so committed to trying to improve their practice Mm 
that they would browse through a bookstore looking for a book on teaching, mm-hmm. pick it up and read it, and then try to figure out how to apply those ideas in their own classroom and needing some additional help. I, I was stunned by that. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I had no idea that it would have that effect. And I, I don't know, I was pretty humbled by that because it's, it sort of um, made me realize how desperately so many teachers would like to learn how to get better, mm-hmm. how to improve, but just have so much trouble accessing resources mm-hmm. that will help them do that. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Jim Hebert from the University of Delaware, the Margaret B. Lindsay Award winner for Distinguished Research in Teacher Education from the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education. I also wanted to touch on the Mid-Atlantic Center for Mathematics Teaching and Learning um, that you were essentially involved in. What was the origin of that center, and then what have you been most proud of thinking back to the, the era of that center? Jim Fay at the University of Maryland contacted um, those of us at Delaware and at Penn State and suggested that there was an RFP from NSF about creating centers and whether we Mm -hmm. might like to create a consortium to submit a proposal. Um, We all jumped at the chance to do that. And we were fortunate to be one of the first centers funded. And so we were in on the time when they did renew centers. So we ended up with 10 years of funding. Mm -hmm which was a real luxury. And I think there are two things that came out of that. Um, One is that we had a chance to really work as a consortium on courses for doctoral students, experiences for doctoral students. The center was aligned with NSF priorities at that time for those centers, which was to increase the capacity for the U.S. for... PhDs in the STEM fields, Mm -hmm. and in our case, it was math education, of course. Mm -hmm. So one outcome was the development, the strengthening of the PhD program. And a second was that the time we got the funding was sort of a sweet spot at Delaware with regard to the recruitment of a number of faculty that all were sort of searching for a way to collaborate. So for a number of years at the beginning of that center funding, all of the faculty in math ed in the School of Education here began working on a single project together. Hmm. And that was improving the content courses for our elementary pre-service teachers. Those were challenging, had been challenging for years. If teachers weren't certified, if they didn't graduate, it was because they couldn't pass these math courses. We asked ourselves, suppose this is our problem, not their problem, how would we redesign the courses to improve them? I brought a lot of the stuff I had learned from working on the teaching gap and learning about how the Japanese improved their teaching. My colleagues brought additional ideas, but we essentially developed lesson study process around those courses Mm -hmm. and that's been continuing now for 20 years which is pretty remarkable Mm -hmm. initially it was it sort of consumed all of our time at this point faculty have their own research agendas as well as doctoral students but we still collaborate to some extent on the 
studying and improvement of those courses. So mm -hmm. that's been a real uh, enjoyable activity. And I think we have the data that show that it has really made a difference for our undergraduates. So. Both of those threads lead us to something you've been working on in recent years, and that's really this mechanisms of change, systems for helping instructional change actually come about. And you mentioned it here at the University of Delaware, actually working on that firsthand, but also how you mentioned in your previous remarks about the teaching gap, how you became interested in bringing some ideas to the United States to try to think about how can we change the quality of instruction on like a systemic kind of level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just uh, what is your current thinking on that? What are, what are you grappling with right now in this kind of up to now present day, your scholarly thinking? Yeah, I think that I've basically continued to work on how to develop those ideas to make them relevant to U.S. culture. Mm -hmm. A number of things have fed in to kind of enrich my own thinking about that. One is the discovery with some of my colleagues here, especially Ann Morris, about how other professions improve their professional practices. Mm -hmm. And it's remarkable how similar the process of continuous improvement looks in a range of professions from medicine to industry to service um, occupations. And the remarkable thing is there are some, to me, striking similarities between lesson study, as I learned at first from Japanese teachers, mm -hmm. to the kind of processes used in multiple professions, which made me think that there could be some parallels and there could be something to learn about how one could study teaching in school settings and improve professional practices there. The fundamental sort of axioms of that process, though, really fly in the face of culture in the United States. Mm -hmm. So one of them is you need to give yourself a long time. So there aren't quick fixes. Okay, so this gets into policy issues then, right? Like, yeah. Like if a district wants to do a one-year turnaround or something, that's not what you're kind of yeah. saying would work. Or, or governments even, like state government, they want to see, I want to see our achievement scores rise noticeably within two years or something like that. Yeah, so after the teaching gap, I did have some really great fun opportunities. Like one of them was to speak at a congressional breakfast in Washington. There are these breakfasts that they organize and, and senators, representatives can come to eat breakfast and listen to someone talk. All right. But the rule is you get to talk for 10 minutes and then they get to ask questions for 50 minutes. Okay. So my topic was supposed to be what did we learn from the international comparison teaching mm -hmm. that could help improve teaching in the United States. So okay. I had 10 minutes worth of things to say. All right. And they had some really good questions, actually. Um, but one of the uh, people stayed after, Senator Lamar Alexander from Tennessee, mm -hmm. stayed after and, and said, boy, I'd like to follow up with you on some of this, because he had been Secretary of Education, and so he had a good feel for American education, and he sort of wanted to follow up. His staff member called, as he promised, the next day and said... We're interested in 
more details about what you would have to suggest. So mm-hmm. I described a little about some of the changes that would be needed in the U.S. and how we would need to replace some of the things we were doing with very different kinds of things. Um, and he said, so cutting to the chase, how long would it take to see improvement in standardized achievement scores right. using your method? Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, wow, minimum 10 years. And, and he laughed thinking I was actually joking. Mm. And he said, no, no, seriously. And I said, uh, seriously, yeah, 10 years or more. And he said, well, could you give me your two-year plan? I said, no, uh, there is no two-year plan. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I really appreciate your time, but thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of my conversation. Mm-hmm. That kind of push toward mm-hmm. quick fixes, quick turnaround, right. immediate need, change. I need to have results by the next election cycle so yep. I can run on it. Like That is a killer. From my point of view, that's fatal to any kind of improvement. Mm-hmm. And I think it explains why in the U.S. there is plenty of research that says, you know, Teaching today looks pretty much like it did 75 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's more colorful. Teachers might be more animated, but the actual interactions around the subject look very much like they did in a, in a mm-hmm. you know average classroom mm-hmm. years ago. And our Tim's video study sort of confirmed that, that mm-hmm. looks like teachers taught years and years ago. Yeah. Did you have some other axioms too? Sorry, I kind of I prompted no, you on that fine. first one, but you, you said there were maybe some other axioms about this uh, instructional change. Yeah, one is, uh, a second is um, collaboration. Um, amongst teachers? Like, uh, yeah, yeah, amongst teachers. Opening the classroom door, letting people observe. Seeing an observation of teaching as a learning experience, not an evaluation experience. Mm. We have almost no way of thinking about how to do that. Mm-hmm. After the video study, when I would go around showing videos and I would say, now don't evaluate the teacher, just think about what you can learn. There's no, we have no framework for doing that. Mm. So that's another big change is Mm -hmm. thinking about what you can learn from observing teaching, not just evaluation. Mm. The collaboration piece, teachers need to work together. It's almost impossible to sustain if you're doing it individually. Mm -hmm. Other professions have learned this Mm -hmm. very well. So there, yeah, there are a number of things that I think would have to change. So, do you see any kind of for the collaboration piece? Do you see any kind of promise in the rise of PLCs and PLTs becoming more common, or it seems like they're becoming more common in districts? Is that the kind of thing you're imagining, or are you imagining something? In a, in I think those. I think those would set the stage for um, the the kind of collaboration that might be productive. But it's clear that it's not just getting together and talking about teaching. Mm-hmm. So it matters a lot what you do when you meet, and that takes some learning. Um, how to have a productive session with your colleagues about teaching. Mm-hmm. That's something we would have to learn, because um, although teachers, I think, would, would really love to do that, we just don't know how. So there's so many things that would need to be learned, I don't, I don't think it's impossible. I'm, don't, I'm not trying to sound like there's no way this could happen. Mm-hmm. 
But I think the way it has to happen, and it is happening in some places, it has to start at a local level. It has to start with teachers having the opportunity and the support to engage in this kind of work, mm-hmm. learning how to do it, having the time both during the year and in the long run to continuing to get better, mm-hmm. and then gradually spreading. I've seen that when teachers have the opportunity to do this and stick with it, when they see that when they make a small change in their instruction, their students' thinking changes a little bit, mm-hmm. that's a really motivating thing for teachers because that's what they're after. They're what, trying to help their students mm-hmm. think more productively about something. And when they see that they can manipulate that in some way by changing their teaching, it's a really motivating thing. But to do that takes time, mm-hmm. and that's really tough. Mm-hmm. One last thing I'll throw in. Keeping the curriculum stable is another huge thing. Oh. You have to get good at you teaching mean, this. You mean you mean swapping it out every three years? Is yeah, that <laughs> also fatal. Mm. Uh, because you don't get good at teaching in general. You get good at teaching particular concepts in particular ways mm-hmm. from particular curricula. And because teachers have the rug pulled out from under them every mm-hmm. few years and standards change and textbooks change, yeah. there is no way that anybody could get good at teaching yeah. under those conditions. I think so. A colleague of mine, uh, Debbie Hannison and Zandra Diarajo, I think this was in the context of science ed, but I think they found if you switched the curriculum or made a teacher teach something different than they had taught for the last few years, they were very similar to a first-year teacher, even if this was their 10th year of teaching. But it's because it's like re-novicing. Like, I'm a novice actually at this curriculum or at this, you know, grade level that I haven't taught before. Right. Where you might expect, well, if they're a 10-year teacher, they could teach any of it now, you know, like... (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting because that is exactly my impression about what happens. A quick comment from a Japanese colleague to give you an idea of how strikingly different our cultures are. I asked him once, how often do you guys change textbooks? And he said, oh, well, we have a, um, at the National Ministry of Education, there is a sort of expectation that every 10 years we'll review our current uh, curricula and set of standards. But if we changed it every 10 years, we would be giving teachers whiplash. Mm-hmm. So, so it's just like slayer visions might be the more appropriate time. And I'm thinking, wow, if you think 10 years gives teachers whiplash, mm-hmm. imagine what it's like to change it every three years, mm-hmm. you know? Wow. So that's a very different way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So one thing I want to add is that um, when I talk about the challenges we have in improving learning opportunities for, uh, for students, I'm really not talking about the quality of teachers. Mm -hmm. I think the teachers that I've met and that I've heard from and that I've seen on videotapes are all extremely capable of teaching very well. I think the problem is the conditions under which we put teachers are so difficult that um, it's really hard for them to have the chance to learn, to improve, and so on. So I think these are policy issues and these are school leadership issues. These aren't issues about the quality of teachers we have in the U.S. Yeah. 
So just to add on to that, I was speaking to a teacher this week, and this teacher is doing a lot of good, exciting things with students and getting some good student thinking happening. Mm-hmm. But the teacher also says, you know, if if I had just a little bit more planning time, or if I had a little bit different resources, I feel like I could even go that next mm-hmm. step. You know, but day to day, he can't quite take that next step because yeah. I've only got five minutes, and I I need to print this off, and I need to have this ready. And so it's just, you know, that's the conditions I think that you're kind of referring to. Exactly. Sometimes the phrase I use that makes a lot of sense to me is, this isn't about teachers, it's about teaching. Mm-hmm. It's about the methods that that American teachers have learned to use and have not had the opportunity or the time or the resources to think about alternatives and to learn mm-hmm. how to improve those over time. So you've maybe laid some of these out already, but I just want to ask, since I have you here, what do you see as the biggest challenges facing mathematics education right now? Is it some of the stuff you've already mentioned, or I'll give you a chance to bring up anything else if a big challenge for the field? And are there some productive ways you can see to face the challenges? I think the biggest challenge is appreciating the difficulty of changing learning opportunities for students in a substantive, lasting way that moves students toward the goals that we would set for them. Appreciating how difficult that is and how much time it takes and what kind of resources are needed, that to me is the the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. I think we know now much more than we've known before about how that could be done. I think now it's a matter of demonstrating in small places what the impact of those changes could be mm-hmm. to convince um, policymakers and leaders in congressional staffers <laughs> that this is worth it. Mm-hmm. It's worth the investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for speaking about your career. Um, really appreciate all the work you've done. You've made a large impact on my own growth back from when I was uh, in teacher preparation and then onward now into my scholarship. So it's been really nice talking to you. I have a different kind of question to end on uh, that you might be aware of, but if you weren't in math education as uh, your career passion, is there anything else you could imagine having done over these decades? As I was growing up, I didn't have three or four options of things that I was really interested in and chose one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I just seemed to follow what seemed reasonable as the next step. But looking back, I will have to say that if I would imagine another career that I could have been really interested in, I would have been an airline pilot. Hmm. I used to fly United Airlines all the time because they had the uh, headsets where you could listen to air traffic control. Oh, That, to me, was hugely fascinating. You could be an air traffic controller. I could be an air traffic controller. (laughs) Those guys... uh, uh, Wow, talk about a stressful job. I just, <laughs> yeah. I, I was blown away by how skilled some of those people are. Mm-hmm. And I would say um, the other alternative for me would have been um, a ranger in one of the national parks. Oh. Yeah, I have just learned to love our national parks and mm-hmm. spend summers in the national parks. And to think of yeah. having a job... Mm-hmm. Um, not cleaning toilets so much or taking tickets at the kiosk, mm-hmm. but you know, leading hikes and yeah. doing interpretive talks and all of that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and having a chance to be outdoors in the national parks. Mm-hmm. That, uh, 
Yeah, that would be lovely. Do you have a particular favorite park? Or oh, yeah. With yeah, Glacier oh, yeah. National Park is my favorite. And it's, mm -hmm. it's because the hiking there is just spectacular. Mm -hmm. I, there are a lot of other really interesting parks, but I've never found one that has the hiking trails with the incredible, incredible scenery that you can encounter in the backcountry there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Jim. It's been really a pleasure speaking with you, and thanks so much for all your work and all the work that is still to come. Thanks for talking with me.